I myself have been out the last couple of weeks uh, with my wife. Our kids are grown. We have a 24-year-old who's married and lives in Atlanta, Georgia. Not sure why he lives there other than he chased his wife there. She works for Chick-fil-A. That's where Chick-fil-A's headquarters are, and so he chased her there and won, I guess is the way to look at it. Um, so that's why he lives in Atlanta. They've been married about a year, got married right before COVID. That was crazy. Uh, I guess COVID was around before that, but you get the point. They got married about a week later, the world shut down, and they've been living together, like working from home for an entire year, and they're still married, so that's a pretty good sign, right? Um, I have another son who's 21 who lives in Waco, Texas, goes to Baylor University, and that's another thing all in of itself, but we just got to go down and see him, and so we were gone ourselves for the last two weeks, and, and something happens when you go away, things like that. I just want to encourage you with this. If you take vacation this year, it's real easy to take a vacation from God when you go on vacation because um, you just want to rest, and somehow like you kind of believe God's with you, but you don't really remember that you need to be actively involved in being God's presence, um, even though he's with you. And so I just want to encourage you when you go on vacation this year, like don't take a vacation from God. Um, he's not vacating you. And so this afternoon when you blow things up, remember God's with you. Um, tonight when you're listening to other people blow things up and your dogs are going crazy in your house, remember God's with you. And my prayer this morning is that as we step into God's word, that you would remember that God's with us right now. It's easy when we're in a place like this and we're singing about God's presence, but it's hard sometimes when we go and we're floating down a river to remember that God's like created that river and all the things we're going to be a part of. That leads me into this question, what, what hinders you from hearing God? Like, What are some of the things that hinder you from hearing God? What, are, what would be the main thing? that hinders you from hearing God. Let me, let me make it really practical for a second. If you're on a phone call and you're, you're needing to talk to your insurance agent, what are some of the things that hinder you from hearing what they're saying? I was talking to a guy on the phone the other day, insurance person, and the biggest thing that hindered me was his voice. He, he didn't have a foreign accent. It was very much American, but it was so, I'll use the word, redneck, that I'd never heard anybody like, like talk on the phone like this representing a country, uh, uh, excuse me, a, a community of business that when it, when it came out of his mouth, I thought he was kidding because it was just, well, hello. And I was like, wow, you're for real. And, and I couldn't hear anything he was saying after that just because of how he was talking. It was so, it wasn't distracting. I was just lost. I was giggling the whole time I was listening to this guy. And I know that sometimes you really want to pay attention to people and it gets hard. Think, think back for those of you that had to go through a class, sit through some class, maybe you had to for work because you got to get updated on whatever you're doing. What distracts you in the middle of that class? For, for, for some of you, it's everybody around you, right? You're looking at what people are wearing. You're looking at her hairdo. You're looking at what he has on. Those shoes, where did she buy those shoes? My wife walked out of a store the other day. We were going on vacation. Some lady, didn't even know her, we were at a restaurant, walked up, and I saw what was happening. I was standing with my 20-year-old son. I said, watch this, Kay. That lady's going to ask her where she got her shoes. And she did. Didn't know her. Walked up screaming. And we were both just, just two boys standing over there going, That's, no man ever walks up to another man and says, <laughs> Man, where'd you get those shoes? Those are amazing. I mean, we want to, but we're not going to say that. <laughs> Distracting things around us all the time in a class is what other people are doing. Sometimes it's what your teacher's doing. My son, one time, I still have this photo. I wish I would have brought it and put it on the screen. He, he had his computer open in a class. He had his phone sitting right here, and he took a screenshot of his computer and his professor teaching when he was at Baylor. He was watching the masters while he's taking notes in the middle of this accounting class. And, and I, I happened to be texting him that. It was an afternoon. I didn't know when his class schedule was, never knew. And I was like, are you watching the Masters? Because something crazy was going on, this golf tournament. And he's like, yes. And he sent me a snapshot of him watching the Masters in the middle. Of, and I thought, well, there's money going to great use, right? <laughs> Good stuff. What, 
What distracts you from hearing people is so much. I think for me, the greatest distraction is me, though. Like when I'm trying to listen to you, like my greatest distraction is what I'm thinking about doing this afternoon. Like for some of you right now, just hearing God's word is going to be hard because you're thinking about, oh, no, I forgot to do this for all these people that are coming over. I, I, and you're going to sit and have all these things going off in your head. And I just want to bring it back to this. What, what distracts you from hearing God? I want to demystify this just a little bit about hearing God because I think one of the greatest hindrances from us hearing God is is we just don't believe that this is God's voice. And so I think most of our prayer time is spent on asking for what Jesus called all these other things. Matthew chapter 6, he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. What are all these things? I'm going to give you some, what he said, literally, he said, like, what you're going to eat today, what you're going to wear, but I want to add into this category, um, where do I work? Find me a verse in the Bible where it tells you how to pray for where you're going to work. Find me a verse in the Bible where it tells you where to pray about where, if you should move to go to work. Find me a verse in the Bible that tells about which school you should go to, who you should date, who you should marry. No, there's a lot of verses that tell you who not to marry, but there's no verse in there that says, Mary Courtney, right? Mary Steve, Mary Micah, right? I mean, you wish that verse would have been there one day, but it wasn't there. And so what do you have to do? You have to do all this praying. And what I want to say is that for most of us, we spend the majority of our time trying to hear God's voice about all these things when the Bible is full of how we are to live in the kingdom and his righteousness. Let me give you an example. There are 59 other one another's commands in the New Testament alone. These aren't going to be up on the screen, but just here, these are eight of them. Mark 9.50 says, be at peace with one another. How many of you have, would hear that today as a voice of God telling you to be at peace with one another? There's somebody you're not at peace with right now, and God's speaking to you right now saying, I need to figure out how to live at peace with this person. John 13, 14 says, wash one another's feet. When's the last time you washed somebody's feet? It was a command. You may say, well, that, that was more like a picture. Maybe, husbands. Might need to wash your wife's feet sometime soon. Listen to me, husbands. Wash your wife's feet sometime. Some of you are thinking, really? Yes. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Romans 12, 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Romans 14, 19, build one another up. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us. Romans 15, 14, admonish one another. Romans 16, 16, I love this one. Greet one another with a holy kiss. When was the last time you did that? My point is, all over the scripture, God's voice is speaking. And we read those things, and instead of those being God's voice to us and us figuring out, like, how do we obey those things, what we say is, like, well, I know that. I want to know. And then we fill in all these things, like, I want to know what God's asking me to do in my neighborhood. Instead of just hearing the thing, the voice of God saying, love your neighbor, and then maybe we need to pray about it. But listen, if you went into, there's a place called Grandma's Cookies near where we live, and it's these giant cookies. If you go buy somebody giant homemade cookies and bring them to the door, that's loving your neighbor. And you don't need to love them. You don't need to pray about that a ton. You may need to pray about what it looks like ongoing, for sure, because they might be a diabetic. may not be the best thing in the world to buy them cookies, right? But loving them is not the prayer. The question then becomes, like, how do we obey loving our neighbor? 
the question really becomes, will I believe that this is God's voice and that if you want to hear God speak to you today, just open the Word and, and read the Word. The question then really isn't, what's the hindrance from me hearing God's voice? The question then becomes, like, what's the hindrance from me obeying God's voice? Because God's voice is speaking all the time. Yes, God speaks through creation. There's other ways God speaks besides his word. He speaks through creation, Romans 1 says. He speaks through other believers, God's word says. He speaks through the spirit, God says. But all of those things have to be affirmed and confirmed through God's word, or we don't even know if it's God speaking. So open the word. And my question today is this, like, what is the big struggle from us obeying? And I don't even want to say obeying. We had a phrase around our house, and it was like, like, we need you to joyfully obey when my boys were small. And that's, man, that's massively difficult. But as a parent, you know this. Like, it's not just I want you to stop putting your fingers in your brother's eyes. It's like I, I need you to realize, like, this is for the benefit of everybody in the house, for your brother, for all of us. And, and there's something that Jesus had about people that obeyed but did it with a grumbling heart or that people that obeyed so that on the outside they could look good but on the inside their hearts really were disobedient. And so God's calling us to hear his voice, but then to joyfully obey. And I just want to ask this question. We're going to walk through it in Acts chapter 16. How do we joyfully obey God so that it's not just a list of moral rules that we know? For some of you, you've heard so many sermons, read so much scripture, that the voice of God stopped becoming the voice of God. Now it's just a list of moralities for you. And you know how to live those moral rules without any power from God on the outside. But on the inside, your heart still and rebellion. So how do we joyfully obey from the inside out? This is Acts chapter 16. This is where we're going to be today. So you have your Bibles, go there. Acts chapter 16, verse 9. Acts chapter 16, verse 9. It's Paul and his, his men are on a on mission, as they always are, and this is a count of one of those times. It says, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him. So he's having a vision. In the middle of this vision, there's a man of Macedonia, a place in Greece, He's urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go out into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So there was a vision Paul saw and heard, and there was some discernment needed, but I want you to notice what he didn't need. He didn't need to discern, do I need to go preach the gospel to these people, because God had already told Paul to do that. God's word, God's voice had already told Paul, hey, you're going to go preach the gospel for me. Second thing God's word had told Paul is you're going to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles, those that weren't Jews. And this is what was going on in Macedonia. There's going to be a lot of non-Jews there. So he didn't have to like sit down and pray, okay, does God want me to go preach? Does God want me to go? To... He knew those things. What he was having to figure out is like, is this vision from God? Here's what I want to say to you just about God's word. When you wake up in the morning and you have one of those dreams that you think, was that God speaking or was that bad Mexican food? Can I say this? You never have to think that about God's word. You never have to look at Luke chapter 9, verse 23, when he says, take up your cross and go, I wonder what if he really means that, or what he was trying to say. I mean, it's pretty clear, like, you need to die to self if you're going to follow after me. Whereas when we have dreams, I mean, if Jesus really sat on your bed last night and spoke to you, you know what the problem would be? You wouldn't remember every word he said. Most of you wouldn't. You would just be like this. Second thing is, you would be then trying to explain that to people, and I could be looking at you like this. Like, really? And the third thing is, over time, that you, all you would be looking for is for Jesus to come back and sit on the end of your bed. God's given us his word. It's alive. 
Paul has a vision. God's already spoke, and so he knows, hey, this is what God wants me to do. He has to discern some things, so he concludes. This wasn't a lot of work. He said, well, we concluded God's calling us to go there and preach, so they go. Here's, here's the first thing. We're going to be joyful about obeying God's voice. Verse 11 tells us right here, 12. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage, and he goes through all these places to go to Samothrace, and then following day to Neapolis, and then from there to Philippi. They're heading into Macedonia, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we remained in this city for some days. They traveled some 200 miles from where they were by sea, two to three days. Great travel meant great cost. And here's, here's the first thing I want you to hear about joyfully obedient being obedient to God. If you and I are going to be joyfully obedient to God, it's going to require a cost. Always. The the first thing it's going to cost you is comfort. Like for Paul and these men, they had to get on a boat. I don't know if you've been on a boat lately in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Most of you, if you were, you'd be on a big cruise ship. This wasn't that. This is a little wood boat that people died in all the time. Probably really uncomfortable. It was, they were having to leave some kind of comfortable place to go to some place they didn't even know. They'd never been here before. God said, hey, just get up and go. Most of us don't even want to walk across the street talk to our neighbor because of the discomfort of that. Much less get on a boat, sail across a sea to go talk to people that you don't know in a town you don't know, not even really knowing where you're going. The, the first hindrance to most of us joyfully obeying God is just discomfort. There's the cost for most of us is it's just not going to be comfortable. We're going to get real practical about that in a minute, but I, I just want to encourage you, like, For most of you, when you read God's Word, for most of the time in my life, when I look at things in God's Word and I think, hmm, the biggest hindrance to me obeying what God's asking me to do, I'll just make it real simple. And loving my neighbor is the cost. And it's a second cost here. Like, it cost them a lot of money. It was a a month of wages to sell where they went to where they went to. From where they went to where they went to. A month of wages. And so maybe the the thought in my head is, I don't want to buy grandma's cookies for these people. More than not, I don't want to walk across the street and be that guy in my neighborhood. Where I start being known, I mean, I mean, everybody knows I'm a pastor, but now I'm that pastor who, like, talks to people. Right? Now he's trying to convert me. I want to be the cool pastor in the neighborhood. I want everybody to like me. I want them to see me when I have my sunglasses on and my pirate makeup on when I'm running out in the street because I go running and I wear these headbands. I look like a pirate with sunglasses. It's crazy, you need to see it sometime, but, but I want people to see like, oh, there's the, I don't, I don't want to be known as the guy who's like always talking about Jesus. But if you're going to obey Jesus, there's going to be a cost, and it, part of it's going to be the discomfort of being known as that person who loves Jesus. When you obey Jesus, people notice. It goes against the grain of what our culture is about. But secondly, there's going to be financial cost at some point. God's going to ask your money to be in his hands, not in yours. It's the reason a lot of people leave the church. Blame it on, well, the church wants my money. Reality is God wants your money. And so there's discomfort there and the cost, and maybe relational cost. Paul had to leave some people to go. There's always a relational cost if we're going to follow Jesus at some point. These costs keep many of us from starting small groups. And you, we, I know you guys are right in the middle of moving into a new building in a couple of months. I'm super excited for you. It's going to be amazing. I can tell you what's going to happen with a new building unless God just puts his hand out and says, no, you guys are going to grow. And it may not be, listen, it may not be great growth. It may just be a bunch of people like wanting to be comfortable in a building. But you've got an opportunity as people come in to lead them to Christ, 
help them grow in Christ, which means you're going to need to start new small groups, which means some of you, God's calling to do this. And for some of you, you're not going to do it because it's not going to be comfortable. It's going to be a relational cost. You're going to have to leave the small group you're in. And can I just encourage you, you're not leaving them. You're going to be in the same church, okay? But you're going to have to pay a cost to even start a new small group for the people that are going to be coming, for the new people that need to be discipled, for new people that need to be connected, that need to know what the body of Christ looks like, lives like, what it looks like to raise kids, to be a grandparent, to be a student, to be a friend. There's going to be a cost. For some of us, it's going to keep us from stepping out and and staying in leadership because the cost has been so high over the last year and a half. For some of us, it's going to not be worth the cost of raising your kids in community. One of the biggest things I see with younger families is they're just like, they let their kids raise them instead of them raising their kids. And so in order to be comfortable and not hear their kids cry or stay up too late and then be a pain in the morning, they just choose to disappear from community. And it doesn't matter what church you're in. I, I, I have, go to a weird church. We meet on Wednesday night. That's our corporate gathering. So what goes on right here on Sunday for us happens on a Wednesday night. All the time people are coming to us saying, man, this schedule really doesn't work for us because our kids need to go to bed at 7 o'clock. And I'm, the Sunday morning thing's great because that's when we do small groups. They're like, we love the Sunday morning thing. And I said, no, you don't because your kids don't want to go then either. But that's me thinking. I don't say that out loud. But in my heart, they're like, we're going to leave. We're going to go find a church where we can do community where they don't say this, where basically it doesn't cost us any discomfort with our kids. And I said, so here's the deal. You're going to go to Micah's church, and this is what you're going to find. Sunday morning will be great for your kids. You're going to be able to worship together. But if you're going to be in community, when do your small groups meet? Oh, our small, when does your small group meet? Thursday night, what time? And it ends at 6.05? No. <laughs> what time is it in? 8.30. 8.30. So if you put your kids before 8.30, guess what? They're going to be crabby in the morning if you put them to bed at 7.30 all the time. And the question then becomes for you as a young parent, am I going to discomfort my kids once a week? Here's the bigger question. Are you going to discomfort you? for once a week in order to live in community. For some of you, just obeying God in simple community is going to be a matter of the cost of comfort in your family. Every time we choose to obey God, there's a cost. There's always a cost. Here's the good news of the gospel. Coming to Jesus, coming into relationship with Jesus, the, the scripture our brother just read here, all that cost is on Jesus. Right? He paid the ransom. Once you start following Jesus, it costs you everything. You can't separate those two things. And I would even say this, if there's no cost in being obedient to Jesus in your life, I would question whether or not you're following Jesus. I would encourage you to question who you're following, what you're following. Are you following your family? Are you following your comfort? Are you following what? Culture? Again, there's no cost in coming into a relationship with Jesus. That's all on him. But once we start following him, there's going to be a lot of cost. And it simply starts with simple things like comfort and money, and relationships. How do we follow him with joy when the cost is so high? Let's keep going. Verse 13, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed, notice that word, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come, to, who'd come together. Joyful obeying God's calling is going to always involve a second thing, faith. There's a, there's a cost, and the second thing is there's faith. Paul had no idea whether or not there was a There was going to be a gathering of people there. He'd heard. He had no idea where he was going to begin with. He went to this big city. It was Paul's uh, practice to go to bigger cities because there was bigger synagogues there. He would gather with the Jews first, then he would end up going to the Gentiles. 
Usually didn't get accepted by the Jews, but he started there, went to the Gentiles. In this case, first place he goes is down to this river. It says where he supposed. He probably heard as he got into the town that there was this prayer meeting that goes on by this river. And there's women leading this prayer meeting, which is amazing because men didn't engage women in this culture. If you went into the synagogue, all the men were in one place, big dividing wall. Women were watching what was happening. What does Paul do? Walks right to the prayer place, which, by the way, no men, all women. Interesting. And he sits down there to start having a conversation. Why does he go there? Who knows, but here's, here's what I want you to hear. It required some faith on his part to get up and go to this place to begin with, but then to go to where these women were gathered, where he didn't even know they were going to be there, I supposed. And he went. If you and I are going to pay the cost of what God's calling us to, it's going to require great faith that the cost is worth what is going to come out of this. And I don't mean that in any kind of like profiting sort of way, like, man, if I, if I start looking like that guy in the neighborhood, that everybody in my neighborhood is going to get saved, because that may never happen. You may look like that lady in the neighborhood, and you, all you may get out of that is everybody talking about you. Are you still going to follow the voice of Jesus? Your kids, I promise you, as a, as a dad who has a 24-year-old and 21-year-old, you have younger kids, your kids will not remember you keeping them up at 7.30 in a small group when they're one and a half years old. You may remember, but they won't. What they will remember is that they lived in community their whole life with people that love Jesus. Or they'll remember that we kind of went to church, but we really didn't have any friends in the church because we really didn't live in community. That will affect them. And you'll have to believe and have faith that keeping them up is going to be worth the end result of the community we're going to build and the things we're going to do together. And it always requires three things. Faith, the word faith in the Bible means to trust. It's, it's the idea of what you guys are doing right now, sitting on these chairs. I mean, you came in and you probably, most of you didn't like test the chair out. Is this going to hold me up? And then sit on it. Most of you just sat down. You, you did what? You trusted the chair. Why? I, I don't know. You ever seen anybody sit on a chair that doesn't hold them up? It's pretty funny, right? I mean, when somebody sits down, all of a sudden, just and the next time they come up to chairs, they start doing this, right? You get in your car every day, and you drive, and you don't test your brakes. You just drive, and you hope what? The first time you put your foot on the brakes that your car's actually going to stop. So many things you trust in this world, that, that's what faith means. It means to trust, to put your trust into and trust yourself to, and in if you're going to follow God and be obedient, it's going to require you to trust that God actually said it, that God actually said, hey, love your neighbor, that God's actually going to, in some sense, be the person who allows you to be a part of what he's doing, but that he's going to fulfill what he's asking you to do in loving your neighbor. Is God going to do what he says he's going to do as you love your neighbor? And then you're going to have to trust this, that he's actually going to show up and empower you to love your neighbor. There's a lot of trust going on. Like, did God say it? Is God, is God gonna, is God gonna do what He says He's gonna do? And then is He gonna actually show up and be with me in the middle of this? And at some point, when those faith things in there start to happen, the cost starts becoming a non-issue. But it's still a struggle, right? The cost is still real. Faith still becomes an issue, which leads us to this very last thing that God wants to use to increase our faith. So we look at cost and put it where it needs to be. Verse 14. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia. They go meet these ladies at the prayer meeting. They start to speak with them and talk to them about Jesus. 
And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Theatra, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. So she was probably someone who was worshiping Yahweh, but she didn't know about Jesus yet. And then Paul says this. Notice this great phrase, the Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. If, if we're going to obey God's calling, then it's going to require God's presence. And if you need to hear this about the process here. There's a cost, first thing. Second thing, there's faith. And then last thing, I'm backing up here, is God's presence. They all, they all f- work together in God's economy every time God asks us to obey him. Every time God asks us to obey him, there's a cost. If the only thing you do is look at the cost. If that's all you do, you will never get to the place where you experience God's presence in the middle of your obedience. Because for most of us, we look at the cost and we're like, I'm out. But at some point, we start looking at the cost and we start going, okay, God, if I'm really going to do this, like, I, I'm going to need you to come through when we step into faith. But for some of us, our faith is so weak that we never get to experience God's presence in the middle of what he's calling us to. But when cost pushes us into faith, at some point in time, faith absolutely requires that we step into the reality of God's presence if anything's going to happen. But for most of us, it dies right here at cost. God's asking us to do something as simple as pray. And the cost is, well, I'm going to look really stupid in front of my wife. The, the cost is my kids are going to realize real quickly that I, I don't really know how to pray. The cost is I'm not even sure if God's there. And so it requires us to press into faith, right, that this is going to be okay. My, my kids are, are going to be okay with me looking silly. My wife's not going to be down on me about this. That by faith God does reward those who come to him by faith. And then here's, here's the beauty is that God steps into this with his presence, who's already with you in Christ, but the reality of his presence becomes loud. Notice what happens here in this verse. The Lord opened her heart. Paul was obedient, paid the cost to go to where he was going to go, Macedonia. By faith, he went to this river, talked to these ladies. But what made Paul's obedience happen? What made anything happen in Paul's obedience? God showed up. The Lord did what? Opened this woman's heart. And Paul, Paul could have done all of this, said, man, I'm going, I'm there, I'm going to go preach, I'm going to go, and if God didn't show up, it didn't matter what he said to Lydia. It didn't matter how convincing his speech was, how wonderful his sermon was, how beautiful his eloquence was about the gospel, nothing's happening. And it, I don't know that I believe this all the time, but I sometimes believe that if I'm going to love my neighbors, that somehow I'm going to have to be the best version of me. And sometimes what your neighbors need to see is the worst version of you, but the best version of Jesus. Like they need to see you in your, in your neediness for Jesus. They need to see you in your, your human brokenness for Jesus. They need to see that you're not a perfect parent or a perfect grandparent or a perfect student or a perfect neighbor or a perfect yard mower or whatever those things are that you think people need to see. But they need to just see who you are in the middle of your brokenness so they can see how great Jesus is. But I don't trust that. I don't step into that faith, believing that if God's big enough and God's presence shows up, that actually something will happen in my obedience. In this case, Paul saw the cost, stepped into it by faith, and the Lord showed up. And when the Lord showed up, this is what happened. 
Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said in verse 15, and she was baptized, which means this. She trusted and she sat on, again, right, the word trust. She, she trusted Christ with her soul. She said, God, you're the, I've, I've believed in you. I've prayed to you, but now I realize that through Christ is the only way I'm going to be made right before you. So she sat her soul on the work of Jesus. That's what we say when Jesus said, whoever would believe in me, whoever would trust in me, saying you're, you're going to have to trust your soul to my work that I make you right before God. So she trusted what comes after that God says, Jesus commanded us. For all those who believe, then they get baptized. It's an outward sign. It's the reason we put a ring on our finger when we get married. It's an outward sign of what's happened in, the, in a covenant between me and my wife. So there's this baptism that happens and as a sign of her trusting Christ. And her whole household as well all came to Christ. She urges saying, if you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Sometimes we see in the, in the New Testament that when one person in the house gets saved, this whole, the whole house gets swept up in Christ's salvation. It's not a custom where they just decided to baptize the whole house. There was literally a move of God's presence in the whole house. And so they get to see this. The whole Paul gets to see because of one voice speaking, the voice of God telling Paul, hey, go to Macedonia. Paul believing it, stepping out by faith and going, going down to that river by faith where he supposed there was a prayer gathering. God's presence shows up, and now a whole house gets saved. And if you go study the New Testament, this lady is the beginning of everything that happens in Macedonia and all the churches that gets planted. And like she is the center point for this explosion of God's movement all across this place. And it begins because one man heard God's voice and said, well, okay, I'll go. But I don't want you to see it as, as a simple thing because it's not. There, the cost was high. The faith required was incredible. And it absolutely necessitated God's presence. Paul was not a superhero. He was a simple man. God's presence, though, was the key. Required, it's always required for us to obey joyfully. This is John 15. This isn't on the screen, but hear these things about God's presence. John 15, 16. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit. From apart from me can do nothing. Don't miss that. God says, apart from my presence, nothing. So if God's asking you to do something right now, think about something you know God's asking you to do and ask yourself, what is, what's the hindrance for my obedience? Is it the cost? Might be. The cost may be just absolutely making you step out from the very beginning. But maybe you've looked at the cost and said, well, okay, I'll step into that. And by faith, you've pressed into here. But your faith is so small that's not allowed you to say, God, I absolutely desperately need your presence if anything's going to happen. Because that's what John 15 says. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Second thing about God's presence. This is Acts chapter 16, verse 6. Right before the passage we just read, if you're there in your Bible, back up to verse 6. It says, they went through the region of, and he lists off more names here, Phrygia and Galatia. And having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, God said, No. You're not going to speak here. Who knows why? He just said no. And when they come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And that's where they saw the vision to go to Macedonia. The reason God stopped them in all these places is because he was sitting in Macedonia. Had a lady named Lydia there waiting and ready that he was going to work in her heart. Here's what I want you to know about God's presence. Without God's presence, there's no mission. And Paul could have gone to all those places and God would have said, man, I'm not there. I'm not going. I'm not going to move in the places you're going to because I've told you no. God's presence, without God's presence, nothing's happened. But without God's presence, there's no mission. 
There's nothing that happens. And here's the most beautiful thing about God's presence. This is a verse you need to memorize. This is Psalm 1611. It says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. And without God's presence, nothing happens that God's calling us to. There's no ability to be obedient. There's no fruit of obedience in our lives or others' lives. Without God's presence, there's no mission. But here's the best thing. Without God's presence, there's no joy. I got married 31 years ago. And I got a chance to perform the wedding ceremony for my son a year and a half ago. And when you're doing things like that, watching kids grow up and be married and you're giving them away. I mean, all sorts of weird emotions come into your head. But the biggest emotion I had wasn't just thinking about him growing up. It was looking at my bride who was sitting right here, front row, maybe right here, bride side, groom side. She was over here. And the other side? Okay, whatever. She was over here. I don't know. I've done 105 weddings. I still don't know which side brides and grooms sit on. They always ask me, which side do we sit on? I said, I have no idea. I'm a guy. Don't ask me those questions. This side. So I'm looking over here at my wife. And she's crying, and, and all I'm thinking about was not my son at that point. I'm just thinking, I remembered when we got married. And I remember standing at this similar type of moment. And all I remember thinking in that moment of getting married was, and it was hard for us to get to that moment. There was a lot of chaos for us to get married. All I remember thinking was, I want to be with you. I was 25 years old, and I'd spent enough time being single that I enjoyed being single. And the thought of, like, not being single was a, like a contest in my brain. Like, am I going to be single or am I going to be with her? Because, listen, the obedience of being married required what if I was going to be married? It's a cost, right? And what was the cost? I didn't get to go play basketball whenever I wanted to. I didn't get to go do all the single things I used to want to do. I did some of them, but I didn't get to do near as many of them. And so here's the question. It was not just looking at the cost and then I didn't like make a board sheet and go, okay, here's the pros, here's the cons of getting married. The cost over here, wow, those almost outweigh the cost of getting married. You know, I get to, eh, here's the good things. Eh. No, what I looked at was what overweighed everything. There may have been 72 negatives. You know what the one positive that outweighed all this? I get to be with her. That's why I got married. It wasn't all the pros that I got in getting married. It wasn't the tax breaks. It wasn't, it wasn't all the other benefits of being married, right? It wasn't, it wasn't all the beautiful things. It wasn't sex. It wasn't all those things. It was, I get to be with her. Now, we forget that after we've been married a while, right? Some of you are married right now, and you're thinking, I, yeah, that's why I married her. That's why I married him. I want to remind you, that, that's why. The whole reason God brought you into relationship with him is to be with him. From the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, the whole thing is about you being with God. That is the point. God's whole plan in redeeming you to him and to reconciling you to him through Christ was for you to be with him. The joy that God created you to live in is only in his presence. It's not in keeping his commands. In keeping his commands, there's a cost In keeping his commands, it requires faith. And in keeping his commands, we get to experience his presence. That's what he wants. But you know what? I know this about some of you in this room. You can keep his commands and not need his presence. You can be very moral people on the outside and absolutely not need Jesus on the inside. 
I can be a good husband on the outside to the world and be a horrible husband to my wife and not need Jesus. Because nobody sees what goes on inside our house. There's absolutely a requirement of God's presence if we're going to live in the middle of the cost and the faith and then get to experience the joy, whatever it is God's calling us to. The joy of obeying God's call is his presence. And every calling has a requirement. I told my son before he got married that day, I said, you know, if you're going to be married to your lane, his wife, the way God's calling you to, then not only are you going to have to give up these things, but there's things God's going to call you to with her. And for some of you that are married right now, you're experiencing the cost. 30 years into marriage, 40 years into marriage, 10 years into marriage, you're experiencing costs that you've never imagined. And the question isn't, are you just going to bear up under the cost? The question is, are you going to step into the faith required so that God will press you into his presence to live out the cost that he has for you in your marriage in this season? For some of you, it's raising kids right now. And God's telling you some things that you need to do with your kids, simple things in his word. It's discipline, whether it's not giving up, whether it's praying for them diligently because your kids are out of the house now and you're thinking, well, my parenting's done. No. Those of you that have kids out of the house, you know this. Parenting just gets harder when they leave, not easier, because you have all the responsibility and none of the control. You don't have any authority anymore, but you still have responsibility. God still called you to love, still called you to pray, still called you to care. Are you going to take the cost, step into the faith that's going to allow you to press into God's presence? For some of you, it's at the workplace. God's asking you to be diligent about some things in the workplace where you are right now, and there's a cost to to doing what God's calling you to do in the place where you work. And you're not really sure if if the faith that you have is going to allow you to press into this, and the only hope you have is to step into God's presence. So the cost lowers in your mind. Faith rises, and you get the joy of knowing God's presence as you're obedient. What's hindering you from joyfully obeying God's voice? What, what is it? Is it that you're not hearing? I don't think so. For most of us, it's not about hearing. It's just about obeying. And here's, here's the hope of the gospel this morning in obedience. This is, this is from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which so closely entangles us. Let us run with us the race that in the endurance that's set before us. What Hebrews 12, 1 is saying is that God's called us to live a life of obedience, but it's hard. There, there's, there's weight of sin on us. There's, there's entanglements that come against us. I, I see the cost. I struggle with the faith. And so he said, run the race that's set before you, but I want you to notice how. This is verse 2 of Hebrews 12, looking to Jesus. Notice what he says, first thing. He's the author and perfecter of your faith. Who, who gives you the faith to be obedient? Jesus. He's the author of it, and he's the perfecter of it. How? Because he paid the cost. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, and he's giving you his presence through the power of the Holy Spirit. Watch what Jesus has done. Jesus paid all the cost. He brought his presence to this earth, paid all the cost for you and I. Not just to be made right with God, but so that his presence could be with us. He paid that cost. And then the cost that he paid, now the Holy Spirit of God who lives in us gives us faith so that we can actually experience and believe that God is with us, living in us, to have the joy to live in the middle of the obedience he's calling us to. 
And if all you've heard this morning is, man, there's a cost for being obedient and I just need to suck it up, you've missed, missed, missed the gospel. And the gospel says to you this morning, Jesus has paid the cost for whatever he's asking you to do. Love a neighbor, raise a child, love your spouse, whatever it is. He's paid the cost. And in paying the cost, he's brought his presence that will give us the faith. And most of all, his presence that will empower us, give us the peace, the joy, the hope that we need. That's the beauty of the gospel. He hasn't just forgiven you, but now he empowers you to live out the obedience that he's calling us to. What's the hindrance this morning for you? If you're stuck at the cost right here this morning, and my prayer is that you would see the love of Christ that poured out his life so that the cost has been put on him, so that he can give you faith through his presence. We're going to spend a moment in prayer right now. I'm just going to ask you to, for you and I to, to step maybe into the middle of this morning, the beginning, some confession. And just be honest with God at maybe one place where he's asking you to be obedient, where the cost has been too much. So where is that place right now where God's asking you to be obedient? You know it. You don't have to think about it. You know immediately God has been asking you to be obedient about this and to be joyfully obedient about it. But the reality is the cost has been too much, too uncomfortable, too much control ripped out of your hands, too much much ability to be seen as a person you don't want to be seen as, too much discomfort, too much man's disapproval. So right now, can we just confess together that we've allowed the cost to keep us from being obedient? God, hear our confession. Across the room, we confess to you that there's a place you've called us to obedience where we've just seen the cost and given up. Confess that to him right now. Confession doesn't just need to end at saying, God, I'm sorry for the stepping out on the cost. It, it always needs to turn into repentance where we turn towards Jesus. And as Hebrews 12, 2 told us, it said, so fix our eyes on Jesus. Right now, I want you to turn away from the sin, the cost that you've looked at and been disobedient about. I want you to turn to Jesus, and I want you to see your Savior who's paid the cost. I want you to see your Savior who's brought the presence of the Holy Spirit into your life that's been made right with God through him. And I want you to hear him saying, no shame. I've taken that. And I want you to ask by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in you for the faith to step into his presence and be obedient and be joyfully obedient so you can experience the joy of his presence as you follow him in this. So God, help us look at you this morning. See, the love of a Savior poured out his life for us so that we could have your presence. The love of a Savior poured out his life so that we could live in a faith greater than our own that is your faith, that is perfected through you, and so we can most know the joy, oh, the joy of your presence. Turn our eyes to you, Jesus, this morning. Cry out to him and tell him this morning, God, I believe, but help my unbelief. God, I have faith, but help my lack of faith through the power of your Spirit. Tell him right now. Jesus, we ask this morning that you would empower us through your presence. To not just be obedient, but to know the joy of your presence in our obedience. 
And I pray in some simple acts of obedience this morning, we'd have to step into great faith through your spirit and that we would know the joy of your presence like we never have. And I pray that for my brothers and sisters this morning, even right now, right now, God, that you'd rise joy all over this room because of your presence. And I pray this in your name, Jesus.